Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you so much for joining us on BC Podcast. Here's a message to encourage your heart this week. It's good to be again here with you this morning. Uh, I'm the pastor of discipleship here at Bible Center, so the things that I'm always thinking about is how do we connect people to Jesus in the church? How do we help them grow in Jesus? Then how do we help folks who know Jesus begin to multiply their lives through fruitful labor? living their life where they can be disciples of Jesus who make more disciples of Jesus. And today's a big day for a lot of reasons. Another big reason is because we're ending our summer series today. All summer, we've been looking at the transformed life, the transformed life. We spent June looking how, how God transforms the heart of individuals. Then July, we spent time looking at how he transforms his people. We looked at Joel and Psalm 80, looked at some really fun passages, Ezra and Nehemiah. And then in August, we have a couple Sundays where we're going to look at how the transformed life leads to a life on mission. The transformed life leads to a life on mission. And this entire summer and this concept of the transformed life really is grounded in the gospel. We know that the Bible is very clear and the big message of the gospel is that God created all things. God himself made all things with intentionality, with beauty, and with purpose. He designed us and fashioned us to have a relationship with him and with one another. But the Bible also teaches that sin, which we committed, has broken all things. Sin breaks. So therefore, that relationship that we had with God was broken. Our relationships with one another, broken. The Bible says the world itself, because of sin, was broken, which leads to the next two words of the gospel that Jesus saves. He didn't just make us And then we broke us. He didn't then just leave us. Jesus comes on the scene. The son of God, who's dwelt forever with the father, comes on the scene, takes on flesh and blood, and then dies on the cross in our place. The sin that we should be guilty for, Jesus dies in our place and then raises from the dead. And because Jesus saves, those that place their faith in him as Lord and Savior get to have a personal relationship with God. That relationship is restored with God through Jesus. And then we can have our relationships with one another restored in the power of Jesus. But Jesus doesn't just save us and leave us. Jesus saves us and then changes us, grows us, and ultimately transforms us. So really this whole summer has been double clicking on this idea that God saves his people, but then also changes, sanctifies, and transforms us to be more like him. So we spent a lot of the summer in the Old Testament, looking at transformation there. Today, we're going to be in the New Testament a little bit. And one of the things that sticks out is God doesn't transform us for our sake. God transforms us for the sake of others. He's changing you to be more like him so that you would live a life that impacts the people around you. You are salt. You are light as long as you're here on planet Earth. So today, we're going to look at how a life that's been transformed is a life that is designed and made by God for mission to help other people. I don't usually bring water up here with me, but I have this water bottle up here, and it's a recycled water bottle. There was a day when the plastic that this was made out of was probably a straw or maybe those little round things that hold my Diet Coke together, um, and it was going to go to a landfill. But instead of that happening, it was recycled into a bottle. It was transformed into something useful that carries water, which is necessary for life and being for humans. In many ways, you and I, because of our sin, 
We're heading to the landfill. We didn't have use and purpose. And Jesus saved us and he's transformed us into something that can carry the very words of God, the words of life to other people. Kind of like that bottle. Today, we're gonna look at the life of Saul, Paul, the conversion of Saul into the person of Paul and all that God does in and through him to set his life on mission. If you know Paul, Paul's the guy who wrote a large portion of the New Testament. Paul's the guy through the second half of the book of Acts who went on multiple missionary journeys and took the gospel to places where people have never heard the gospel before. He planted churches. He helped grow churches. He raised up leaders. He appointed elders and pastors over churches. That Paul had a really interesting and rough start. We're going to look at his conversion. We're going to look at his transformation. And then we're going to look at how God gave him passion and purpose and set his life towards ministry. And how does that then impact us. So Paul's story starts in an unusual way. He wasn't known as Paul. He was known as Saul in Acts chapter 7 and 8. In Acts chapter 7, verse 58, we see Saul in action. And it says, when they, that is a group of Jewish folks, had driven him, that is Stephen, out of the city, they began stoning him. And witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Stephen was one of the first martyrs that we ever have recorded in the New Testament. He was proclaiming who Jesus was and shared his testimony along with how we see Jesus throughout the Old Testament and who he is and what he's accomplished. And the way that those who were against him responded to that is they stoned him. And that verse, that, that phrase, we're stoning him, actually points to the fact that this took a while, which is not a great thing to hear for Stephen. But usually when you stone someone, you threw rocks for a long time. And in this verse here where it says they laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, I kind of thought that meant Saul was in charge. But as I read commentaries about that, it actually just means that these folks were probably sweating, tired and worn out. And they just took their robes off and started putting them on the ground because they were throwing rocks for so long and so hard. But we do know that Saul was there intentionally And we know that Saul approved it. In chapter eight, verse one, it says, and Saul approved of their killing him. So Saul was there and Saul didn't slow any of it down. He was happy with what had happened. Stone after stone hitting Stephen and Saul approved. In Acts chapter eight, verses two and three, it says, this is right after the stoning of Stephen. On that day, the stoning of Stephen a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. So right there at the beginning, like the church hasn't even been around very long. They're pretty much centered in Jerusalem. And Saul comes in and just starts going after the church finding Christians, men and women, and pulling them out of homes. I mean, you could be in the middle of family dinner and you get a knock at the door and you're dragged out of your home. So negatively, we see persecution take place. Positively, the folks in the early church, Jesus looked at them in Acts chapter one, verse eight, and he said, you will be my witnesses in Judea, or in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. 
And there's this tendency with us as Christians that once we find some place where we're comfortable, we just stay there. When we find our people, we just stay with just those people. We just tend to do it. So here's the church huddled up in Jerusalem and they weren't really expanding. So here comes persecution. And guess what? The church starts to expand. The people went to Judea. The people went to Samaria. Now Christians are starting to go all over the place. So there's a negative, but God also uses it for the positive. In Acts chapter 26, we see Paul begins to discuss and describe what his life was like before he knew Jesus. He's standing in front of the Romans at one point. He's standing in front of the Sanhedrin at one point, And he's talking about basically his testimony. So he describes himself this way in Acts 26, verses 9 through 11. It says, Saul would lock up the saints and even cast his vote to put them to death. He would attempt to get them to blasphemy. In other words, back in that day, if anyone were to blasphemy, if the Jews caught you blaspheming, you would then get stoned. And at that point, they did not believe that Jesus was Lord. So if Paul could get a Christian to say out loud, a Jewish Christian to say out loud, Jesus is Lord, he could get them stoned. So that was one of his goals. I don't want to just persecute you and imprison you. I want you dead. Like that's how Paul was thinking in this time. He would pursue them to foreign cities. So the persecution sent Christians to cities further and further away. And Saul kept chasing them to those cities. And then chapter nine, we see a huge change in the life of Paul. How could a guy like this ever come to know Jesus? How could someone like this ever help lead the church forward? Jesus himself steps in and we see these words. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So in the middle of his sin, in the middle of him attacking the church of Jesus, it says that he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, that is, they knew Jesus, whether men or women, that he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he got closer to Damascus to carry out this plan of persecution, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and Saul heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. And in that moment, Saul is forever changed. In that moment, he places his faith in Jesus, and he heads to Damascus, but then heads on to Jerusalem. Just notice what Jesus says there. Sometimes you think when someone comes after you because you believe in Jesus— or whenever you're torn down by culture because you believe something that culture does not like, sometimes you take that personally. Why are they being so mean to me? Why are they attacking me? Jesus is the one who's being persecuted. Was Jesus drug out of a house? Was Jesus stoned? No, it was his people. But when his people are drug out of homes, when they're persecuted, when they're stoned, when you're treated a certain way because of what you believe, it's Jesus who is also suffering with you. He felt it and he expressed it to Saul. You are persecuting me, Jesus said. So in those moments, Saul's life is completely changed. In Acts chapter 13, verse nine, it says, but Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, 
And he goes on and begins doing ministry, casting out demons, sharing the gospel, doing discipleship. And from this verse on, he's only referred to as Paul. The name Saul just kind of goes away. Now, Jesus didn't actually change his name. Like there was a point there where we saw Abraham, or Abram become Abraham. When Cephas became Peter. Like we see Jesus changing the names of some of his followers. But here, it's interesting. It's not till a little bit later when we see Saul begin to be called Paul. And this is interesting because the word and the name Saul has some like regal strength to it in terms of like a Hebrew name. But the name Paul, which was likely his Roman name, just meant little or small. Small Paul. Like, that's what it meant. Puny. And Paul now takes that name on to describe himself. And that's what people call him, Paul. And what's interesting there in Acts 13, 9, and a little bit later, Paul's mission goes from reaching the Jews to trying to reach the Gentiles. And in trying to reach the Gentiles, the name Paul makes a lot of sense. It's his Roman name. Now, there's a journey that Paul has to go through here, from going from Saul to Paul. In Acts chapter 9 is where he comes to know Christ. Just a little later in the same chapter, it already says that those who were friends of Paul, the other Jews who were persecuting the Christians, were already seeking to murder and to kill him. Like those who were working with him to persecute the church had already turned on him. But at the exact same time, you've got this church who had been persecuted by this guy. So he doesn't have any trust with Christians. So those who he used to work with want to kill him, and those he's now aligning with are saying, we don't trust you. So it's a hard period of time for Saul, who is now called Paul. So we go a little bit farther into his journey. And what we see is that over time, the apostles get to see him and to watch him and to hear him share the gospel, to watch him go through persecution. And then this guy shows up named Barnabas a very trusted follower of Jesus, a leader in the church. And he says, I think this Paul is okay. And then things begin to change. Paul now is sent out on his first missionary journey. So what we're seeing happen is this beautiful gospel playing out in the life of Paul. Paul comes to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. His background is horrendous, just like your background and my background is horrendous. Whether it's big things or little things, all sins put Jesus on the cross and all of us without Jesus have a horrendous background. And when Jesus comes in and saves Paul, he's now converted and changed, forever changed. And now he's going through this process of transformation where he used to live one way, now he's living a different way. So much so that they lay their hands on Paul and Barnabas and send him out on his first missionary journey. So here's a map of the first missionary journey. And I didn't put all the, the countries that are there now, but it's a journey where he goes out and starts several churches in the area of kind of Galatia at the time. And he just starts getting them going. As he goes through all the churches, he then turns around in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, and then goes back through and appoints elders and leaders over these churches. So the first way through, he's sharing the gospel launching, starting churches. It's beautiful to read that section of the book of Acts. 
But as he starts churches, he doesn't just leave those churches. He gets on his little missionary bike and then turns around in Acts 14 and then goes back through. And he stops at each church again and appoints elders, pastors over each church, which is an interesting thing. Uh, in the American church, there's a lot of thoughts on, should we just have one person in charge, a couple of people in charge? How do we do that? And the answer should be found in scripture. It's not found in politics or the way nations are run. It's found in scripture. And here, Paul goes back to each of the new churches and appoints elders with an S together as teams over individual churches. He says the same thing to Titus in the book of Titus, where he looks at Titus and says, stay there in Crete and go to all the new churches and appoint elders, a team of people over each church. So we see that being a part of the early churches. Paul is leading us forward. And then we move on to his second and third journey. Here's a map of his third missionary journey. Now, the first map was very localized and smaller. Look how much farther the gospel is going now. Like before, it was just Asia. And now he's taking it all the way over towards Europe and farther. Like he is taking the gospel farther and farther with each missionary journey. That is not the same map that's in my notes. Mine is in Italian. I'm glad they switched that. Um, so in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul takes some time and talks about what these mission, missionary journeys have been like. And it has been no little thing. So just because we're being transformed by Jesus, it doesn't mean that he's going to hand us an easier lifestyle. He doesn't say, I'm going to grow you, so here's an easy, peaceful life lived in only sunshine. Paul, as he's going through these missionary journeys, he says in 2 Corinthians that he was five times by the Jews, whipped 39 times. Why 39? Because 40 typically kills a person. Five times he was whipped 39 times. You know when you go to the beach and you see someone and take their shirt off and all of a sudden you see a scar you've never seen before? I've got one on my shoulder. And you're like, I wonder what that was. Maybe you don't do that at the beach. Okay, I do that at the beach. I'm like, I wonder what that scar is. If you went to the beach with Paul, what his back would look like would be unlike anything you've ever seen before. What he's been through. And that's not it. He was beaten with a rod three times. He was stoned one time. Like they stoned him until they thought he was dead. Then they tossed him over a wall because they wanted to get rid of the body. Later, he walks back into town after Jesus either heals him or brings him back. Like, so he knows suffering. He was shipwrecked three times. He says he went through the danger of being super cold at different times. He's been through it. So the transformed life doesn't mean it's an easy life. The transformed life doesn't mean that everything's going to go the way you want it to go. But the transformed life does mean that you're going to live life on mission, that you're going to have both passion and purpose in the things you do in the life you lead. And we see Paul living that way. Now, go ahead and show the next map. Okay, so there's a point in Romans chapter 15 where Paul is writing the Romans. He's sitting in prison, and he's just thinking about the gospel going forward. He's already done his three missionary journeys, and he's sitting in prison, and he talks about his eagerness to take the gospel to Spain. In that day, Spain would have been as far west as pretty much anyone in that part of the world had known about Spain. So here's Paul sitting in a prison, 
If you think your body hurts from what you've been through, imagine what Paul's body feels like sitting in an ancient prison, having been beaten and stoned so many times. The pain and the ache that it just would have felt like for him just to live day to day. And he's sitting there thinking, oh, I've got to get that gospel to Spain. I've got to get that gospel to Spain. So he tells the Roman church, I hope to stop and to see you on my way to Spain. I don't know, there's something about that that gives me goosebumps. Like at this point, he's an older guy. He's been beat up. He is bruised everywhere. And his dream and his passion is still taking the gospel farther and further. That's what's in his head. That's what's in his heart. That's what he's dreaming of. That's what he's planning. That's what he's banking on. But the book of Acts stops in chapter 28. And we don't find out from the book of Acts if he makes it to Spain. But what's interesting is when you look into church history, there was a guy named Eusebius. And Eusebius was a first century historian. And he wrote about Paul and he wrote about Jesus. And he just kind of kept track of what was happening. And according to him, Paul was released from that prison when he was writing the book of Romans. And he actually went on a two-year additional missionary journey before he was martyred two years later. So according to a source outside of scripture, which is just a source, but it's a historical source, he made a fourth missionary journey. And in that fourth missionary journey, likely he would have pushed to Spain. There's another guy named Clement of Rome. In the book of Philippians, where Paul mentions the name of a disciple named Clement, this is that Clement. And he wrote about Paul. And he said that Paul, he described Paul as being able to take the gospel to the farthest reaches of the East and the West. So when Clement wrote about Paul, after Paul had been martyred, he said Paul had made it as far East as you could go and as far West as you could go. And in that day and age, the far as West as you could go was likely Spain. So here's Paul. He's got two years left and he knows he doesn't have much time left. If you read the end of the book of Acts, like they weep over him. He says, you'll never see my face again to some of the Ephesian elders. Like, I know I'm not going to make it much longer. But in his little bit of time he has left, he is motivated and pushed and filled with passion to take the gospel as far as you can possibly take the gospel in the known world. His life was transformed and then his life was put on mission. So Paul was passionately committed to this mission. Where did this passion come from? And how can we get a little bit of it? Even if we can just get a little bit of what we see happening in Paul, how does that happen? And how would that change us and move us forward? So we see Paul has a life of passion and Paul has a life of purpose. Where does passion come from? Paul doesn't keep it secret. Paul tells us where his passion comes from. He had experienced the incredible love and grace of Jesus in an amazing, beautiful way, and it moved him and filled him with passion to share that love. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, it says this, Paul speaking. He says, for Christ's love compels us. For Christ's love compels us, pushes us forward because we are convinced <clears throat> that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Where does his passion come from? It's from the love of Christ. The first word in that verse is for. 
before this verse, he's been talking for a couple of chapters about his ministry, that he, what he's been doing for his ministry, his commitment to the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling people to God. He says, for or because the reason, the ground for why I do this ministry is this. The reason why I've been talking about ministry for multiple chapters is this. For Christ's love compels us. The word compels means like it constrains and binds and holds us and pushes us forward in a certain direction. Paul was who he was because he was deeply and profoundly compelled by the love of Christ that he experienced. So for you and I, if you go somewhere and you have this amazing meal, like you go to a restaurant and you're like, they nailed it. You probably tell someone. Even while you're sitting at the table, you're like, oh, this is good. Oh, this is fabulous. We should order more. Why don't we come here more often? And then you go and talk to your friends and you're like, have you guys been there? Because we went there and it was really good. When you go on vacation and you stay in a really nice VRBO or a good hotel experience or a good rental car or Turo experience, you usually tell someone. You even give them five stars. Like when you have an experience that you enjoy and you're moved by it, you tend to share it and talk to people about it. You're slightly compelled to tell people about your tasty dinner. So for us as Christians, how much more so when we experience and drink in the love and mercy and grace of Jesus into our life, into our hearts, how much more so should we then be compelled to tell other people about it? He says, it binds me, it constrains me, it holds on to me, and I have to tell people about it. Like it's already in your nature. When you do something and you enjoy it, you tend to tell people about it. Are you and I telling people about what we've experienced and the person we know in Jesus Christ? He says that he is convinced. In verse 14 there, he is convinced that one died for all. So his heart is filled with passion, but his head knows it to be true. He's convinced of the gospel. He knows that Jesus is who he said that he was. And he did what he said that he did. He died and rose from the grave. So part of this passion, this being compelled, comes from a heart full of passion and thankfulness and gratitude, but also comes from a mind that gets the gospel and is convinced that it is true. It is true. And then verse 15, I love this phrase. It says, but for him. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, that you and I should no longer live for ourselves, but for him. When you live your life and you're compelled by the love of Jesus, there's a point where you no longer live just for you. Paul said it, we live for him. And when you and I look at our lives, the way we make decisions, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, the way we work out our schedule book, the way we prioritize things. The question is, do we do it for him? Are you filled with passion that changes who you are and how you live? The love of Christ and the truth of Christ passionately should drive us forward into a life of mission. The transformed life is a life on mission. The transformed life is a life on mission. Maybe today you're sitting there thinking, you know what? I just, I haven't felt passionate in a long time. 
Like everything you're saying sounds good, and I'll, I'll give it a thumbs up. Like I'll, I'll, I'll like your post, Pastor Mike, but like I just haven't felt it in a long time. Here's my encouragement. If you feel like your flame is just barely flickering, it's not over. There's still the opportunity to grow your passion. There's still the opportunity every day to grow your love for Jesus. My suggestion is this. It's really, it's simple and it's hard at the same time. Spend time with him. Spend time with him. Whatever it takes, whatever it means, spend time with him. Now, this isn't always true of people, but it's always true of Jesus. When you spend time with him, that time leads to intimacy, and intimacy leads to love. Again, that's not always true with people you spend time with. Sometimes you want to spend less time with people. When it comes to Jesus, when you spend time with Jesus, it leads to intimacy with Jesus. And intimacy with Jesus leads to a love for Jesus. So when you look at your schedule, if there's nothing in your schedule where Jesus fits in and time with Jesus fits in, whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not with my schedule, it means that his, he's very low on my priority list and he's maybe low on your priority list. You will not fall more in love with him if you don't spend time with him. When you're married, you spend time with your spouse. When you know Jesus, you spend time with Jesus, whether it's in your car and you have the word of God and worships playing, or whether you have to stop and find that spot in your house where you open up God's word and you just sit with him and talk to him, or whether you have to go for a walk. Maybe you need to do date nights with Jesus. Maybe it's a Friday or Saturday night. You go out to dinner by yourself. It's you, God's word, and that food you like so much. And you just spend time talking to Jesus. If you spend time with Jesus, you will fall more in love with Jesus. And that spark, that little spark, begins to turn into a flame in your heart. And he will transform you and continue to put your life on mission. So we just talked about passion. Paul was filled with passion. But he was also filled with purpose. He had passion and purpose. If we have passion without purpose, then we don't actually accomplish the right things. If you have a whole bunch of energy, but you don't know where you're going, and you're not doing the right things, you can do the wrong things. If you have purpose without passion, you just don't get things done. You just don't get things done. So our goal, and we see this in Paul, we're going to read another passage that he had passion, his heart was filled, and his mind was convinced, and he had purpose. He knew where he was going, and he knew why. In Philippians chapter 1, and these are some of my favorite verses in the Bible, Philippians 1 21 says, Paul says, for to me, to live, to live this life, to wake up and to still be on planet earth and to live this life is Christ, a life lived for Christ. But to die is gain. So he puts two things in front of us. To live here and to remain on earth is Christ, a life lived for him, like we saw in the previous passages, for him. But to die is actually gain. So it's a beautiful thing to be here. It's a beautiful thing to not be here. He goes on to say, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. If I go on, if I wake up tomorrow and I put my feet on the floor again, what that means for that day is it means it's a day of fruitful labor. 
ministry, a life lived for God, producing disciples who make more disciples. I love the term fruitful labor. Fruit tends to have seed in it. So when you see fruitful labor take place, that fruit then can have seeds that produce more fruit that produce more fruit. So every day you wake up is an opportunity for fruitful labor. Yet what shall I choose? He says, I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is far better, much better, greater than you can imagine, kind of better, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So he's saying, I really wanna go and be with Jesus. At the end of all of this, it doesn't get better than being with Jesus. No matter what you're experiencing today, no matter how good it is, there is gain. It is very much better. And that should bring a smile to your face because some of you are having some really hard days. But at the end of your days here, you go somewhere else and it is gain. It is very much better. And Paul feels this tearing inside of him. I want that so badly but it's better for me to stay here. Because if I stay here, it means that for your sake, I can encourage you, I can watch you grow so that your joy and your confidence in the gospel goes up. These are words that we need to hear. Why are you still here? Is it for you? It's more than that. You can have a life that has a bigger purpose than just you or your comfort or your security or just your family. It's like for the progress of the faith of the people in your life, you are still here for them, for others. You and I have been called to that for fruitful labor. They would give our lives to Jesus for the sake of others. So when you wake up in the morning, you wanna make sure that day you have time with Jesus to build your passion So you are compelled by his love, which is overwhelming and amazing. And then when you look at your life and the people in your life, you think, that's why I'm still here. It's so that they would progress in faith and joy. So are you having the kinds of relationships, the kinds of conversations, the kinds of interactions where the people around you are actually growing and progressing both in faith and in joy? If you're beginning to live that way, or you seek to live that way, then you're starting to live a life similar to Paul, where he came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. He was transformed by Jesus, not just for the sake of himself, but transformed by Jesus to live a life of ministry. A life that is transformed is a life that is put on mission. So as we close out our summer series, that's our heart, that's our passion, that you live a life filled with being compelled by the love of Jesus, that you live a life with purpose, that your life is not simply your own, it's not to be lived only for you, that every morning you wake up and put your feet on the floor, you think, how do I get time with Jesus? And how do I live a life so that the people around me will grow and progress in their faith and in their joy? So you would have a transformed life on mission that transforms the lives of the people around you, passion and purpose. The transformed life is a life lived on mission. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for time to be in your word. We love your word and I love how it pushes us. Jesus, as we spend time thinking about all that you accomplished for us, may it compel us and push us forward 
to share your love with others. And may we live a life where we don't live it for ourselves, but for you, Jesus, and that the people around us benefit because we're focused on helping them grow in their faith and in their joy. May we be a church filled with transformed lives that live on mission. In Christ's name, amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com and give us a follow on all platforms at Bible Center.